Hello and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about all of the various new versions of on-screen Star Trek. This week, we're looking at episode three of Lower Decks, entitled Temporal Edict. Your hosts are two Academy faculty members. I'm Michael Merrick, and you might say that I'm the media guy in this podcast. And I'm Rodney Cup. I'm the philosophy guy. And as the faculty of this Star Trek Academy podcast, we analyze every new episode of every Star Trek series as they come out. We compare them to other works in the Star Trek canon. We try to discern their themes and judge their overall quality. Our website is thestartrekacademy.blogspot.com, and you can find links there to follow us on Facebook and Twitter uh, when you go to that website. We're also available on lots of podcast sites that you can find linked at that website. And as always, we begin with a summary of the episode, which my Academy colleague has prepared for you this week. Michael? Yes, and just a reminder, it's really hard to capture the humor of a Lower Decks episode, so we don't generally try. This is more of a straightforward explanation of, of the storyline. Like last week, the open doesn't really have anything to do with the rest of the episode. Boimler is playing a Celtic fiddle for an audience in the bar that isn't really very enthusiastic, but Mariner interrupts with rock music, a really loud amplifier, and the beats heard all over the ship, even in a nearby Klingon bird of prey, whose captain complains. Captain Freeman orders that the music be stopped, but in the bar, Mariner's gone, and Boimler's the one who gets in trouble. The main part of the episode starts with Rutherford echoing something Montgomery Scott said, that you never say how long an engineering job will really take, so that when you get it done sooner than expected, you're seen as a miracle worker. And we find out that the Cerritos crew calls this difference between actual time and estimated time buffer time. And they essentially see it as a time for relaxation. Well, the captain hears this term and asks Boimler what it means. He admits what it is, after which the captain orders elimination of buffer time and requires all crew to complete their tasks on really strict deadlines, which they find to be really stressful. Meanwhile, the first officer, Ransom, Mariner, and an away team have a second contact meeting on Gelrak 5, but instead of bringing a crystal the Gelrak people had given to the first contact team, they accidentally bring a gift from the Gelrak's enemies, leading to the capture and imprisonment of the away team. Gelrak spaceships also attack Cerritos, and because everybody on Cerritos is so stressed out, the Gelrak boarding parties just run amok. The away team will be judged by appointing a champion to fight a huge Gelrak warrior, and Ransom and Mariner each believe that they're the best to fight the Gelrak. Ransom ends up stabbing Mariner in the foot with a sword so that he can pull rank. He fights and really pretty easily defeats the warrior, who turns out to be kind of a nice guy. The away team is free to go, and the Gelrak leaders reconsider the wisdom of judging people by combat. On Cerritos, after talking with Boimler, the captain realizes that she's been too strict with the crew and re-implements buffer time. She orders the crew to cut corners and violate protocol as much as they want to. The crew rallies and overcomes the Gelrak boarding parties. Ransom sends Mariner to the brig because she disobeyed orders. Boimler's the only one who really liked the strict rules, but he understands that other people are different. 
The captain names the new policy of cutting corners and using initiative the Boimler effect, which he doesn't like because it's the opposite of his own strict compliance with protocols and rules. The final scene of the episode is far in the future where we see a class learning about the Boimler effect, which the teacher says is named after the person remembered as the laziest and most corner-cutting officer in Starfleet history, Brad Boimler. So we're looking at all of the episodes, uh, the elements, I should say, of this episode and how they fit to, together. And Rodney, it seems to me that really the creative idea behind this episode flows from, from uh, what Montgomery Scott told Geordi in, in that Next Generation episode, Relics, about not admitting how long a job will really take. But I think that Scotty didn't do it so we could have break time he did it so we really would be seen as a as a miracle working professional yeah, i guess if scotty ever wanted break time it was to read his technical journals <laughs> uh -huh. but um we know we've heard that mcmahon uh the creative force behind lower decks is a big the the next generation super fan and he may have decided that he wanted to take this basic idea from relics that episode and just give it to the writers and see what they could make of that idea. And they took the idea and ran with it and temporal edict was the result. So, yeah. So, so what we're going to do now is we're going to just look at some different elements of the episode a little bit later. We'll put them together and talk about kind of the messages and morals of the story. Again, in this episode, as we noted last week, uh, the writers take standard situations where we pretty much think we know what's going to happen and then put a twist on it. The main part of the episode starts with the first officer's log, which starts out very, very much as we've expected for many previous seasons, but it, it, it has a, a twist that takes it off the rails. Another time was, uh, was the doctor who started to get upset when Tandy said how long it would take to fix the medical bed, but then all of a sudden the switch was, you know, really happy of that. Sounds good. Uh, each time, I mean, it's funny each time, but it also feels creative because just because it is different from what we expect. One definition of creativity is, is innovation. And so you take something where you think you know how it's going to turn out and you, you turn it upside down and, and that makes it, in this case, both funny and interesting, creative feeling, I think. I think they've, I mean, I was just thinking about this. They've got a gold mine here because there's what, over a thousand episodes of Trek or it's around that number. And so there's, you know, there's plenty to expect. I mean, you know, uh, Star Trek episodes have a, have a certain way of proceeding. And so I, I find that they're deriving a lot of humor from violating the expectations of Trek fans who expect things to go one way and then suddenly they go a different way. Another callback to previous Trek was to the, the original series as the away team is getting ready to depart. Uh, Ransom is there commanding and telling them about the unexpected things that he's experienced on away missions. And he mentions horned gorillas, sentient tar, and spores that make you hook up with your best friend's sister. These are all references to uh, episodes from the original series and, and from The Next Generation. There was sentient tar in both The Next Generation and Star Trek Discovery, too. Oh, wait a minute. In Discovery, there was sentient tar? Well, there were, there were those, there was creatures that lived in the tar and stuck their heads, and stuck their heads out of the tar sometimes. Oh, man, I didn't even think of that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. 
So well, how about that? Another thing that happens here uh, that reminded me of a, of a previous episode, uh, the Next Generation episode, The Best of Both Worlds, first part, uh, Mariner tells Ransom when they're arguing in the cave or the cell that he doesn't have scars like she does because he plays it safe. That's exactly what Lieutenant Commander Shelby tells Commander Riker in the turbo lift, um, minus the bit about the scars. I don't think they were showing each other mm-hmm. their scars. Another thing that reminded me of, of previous Trek was uh, Ransom's attempt to make a speech convincing the Galrakians to let them go. And that reminded me of Kirk's and Picard's speechifying, which they did a lot of, and very effectively. Um, Ransom's not that good at it, obviously. And I, maybe that's the writer's point, or maybe they're saying uh, that uh, the success of speechifying in Star Trek is unrealistic. I'm not ex- exactly sure what the joke is there. Um, I want to go back for a second to the scars. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have seen other stories uh, outside Star Trek in which characters compare stars. The one that comes to mind for me is Jaws, the original Jaws movie, where where um, Captain Quint and the scientist Hooper are comparing all their different scars from encounters with sharks or other sea critters. Ransom also often is portrayed as standing with one foot up on something on a chair or a rock or something. And Riker did that a lot. Another thing I noticed, and this is a little bit more of, of animation genre, you know, in, in old time animation characters would often reach behind their backs and pull out something. And I saw at least once where Boimler, I think, I think it was after he phasered some of the, some of the, the board, the boarding parties, he just stuck his phaser behind his back. And we know in Star Trek, that's not where you keep the holsters for your phasers. So I think sometimes they're using that, uh, that animation genre. I remember, was it, was it Yogi Bear or Quick Draw McGraw or something like that would like pull a whole guitar out from behind their back <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, so, I'm going to rewatch it, that. I did it, not notice yeah, that. It's it's kind of a shorthand. It's 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 an easy way of getting or getting rid of things, and and probably a lot of people don't notice it. But uh, I happen to notice that in in the one scene at least. Now now that we've talked about it, we can see if it happens more often. Right. Well, they might as well. It's animated. So another thing I I thought of this might be a bit of a stretch. There are similarities and differences here, but when Ransom and Mariner were trying to decide who was going to fight the gigantic Galrakian, that kind of reminded me of the fight between Kirk and Garavik in the uh, original series episode, Obsession. Uh, Garavik thinks that Kirk is going to use himself as bait against the cloud creature. So he tries to knock him unconscious, I guess, and, and beam up to the ship with him. But in this case, they're trying to decide who's going to take on the massive uh, Galrakian, whose name I can't remember right off the top of my head. And so he runs Mariner's foot through with the battle blade to keep her in the cave so he can go out and rip off his shirt. Well, that's another thing, isn't it? Right? I mean, how many times was Kirk's uniform ripped, right? Yeah. And, yeah, and Ransom just rips it off. Um, it's not like it's damaged in battle or anything. He just rips it off. Anyway. Um, I remember. I, so I don't know how, how seriously to take that similarity, but the, the two situations do seem similar to me. I remember, and this dates me a little bit, but the, the TV series, The Wild Wild West, I remember hearing that, that any time the ratings got a little bit 
a little bit low, they would have the character of James West, Robert Conrad, take a shirt off. And that would boost <laughs> the ratings. So this next one I'm going to mention, maybe this is kind of strange and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but at the end when when Captain Freeman is announcing the creation of the Boimler effect, she actually shows a plaque that has been made up. And the plaque down at the bottom has three signatures. And hardly anything on the plaque is readable, and signatures certainly aren't. But you can read the initials. There are three signatures. One, you can tell the initials are DL. The next, MB. And the last one is like a single word, J, and then a squiggle after it. But I was trying to figure out who could those be. Now, um, the, the actress who voices Captain Freeman is Dawn Lewis. So I was wondering if the signature of, of the actress, maybe I should be saying actor, uh, because that's, a, that's a, a non gendered term now, but the person who plays Captain Freeman, a signature there. The J at the end could be uh, Jerry for Jerry O'Donnell, who plays Ransom. But I haven't been able to figure out who the MB is. I was even trying to figure out if it could be uh, an in-joke of Michael Burnham, but the, the squiggles oh. don't seem to quite match up with, with, with Michael. So I, I don't know. Interesting. That. But that wouldn't surprise me if there was an in-joke there, if there was some kind of tribute to, to someone. You know, um, I mean, looking at the signature right now, it, it, that does kind of look like Michael Burnham to me. I don't know. But it's knows? possible. It's possible. Yeah. I, I looked. I looked on the internet to see if anyone else had 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 insights into this, and no one else is talking about it. So you heard it here first. Uh, That's why we I wanted to do, Michael. Yeah, something I wanted to mention. Boimler, uh, there, when when he's in the turbo lift alone, right before the captain comes in, he's humming the theme from the motion Star Trek: The Motion Picture, which was also the Next Generation theme. Da 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 da. da. I totally missed that. Yeah. I did catch the fight music though. It wasn't the music from Amok Time, but it was very similar to it when Ransom, uh, Vindor is his name, when Ransom was fighting Vindor. So that was a nice callback to the original series. The phrase that Mariner says when one of the away team members has been, been stabbed, we live on a spaceship. That's Zoe from Firefly. Uh, I remember her, her saying that to, uh, to Wash on Firefly. I wonder if McMahon has seen Firefly or what he thinks of it. Maybe someone should ask him. Maybe we could send him an email. <laughs> you can email. I mean, it, it, I mean it, it does not surprise me that people working on this show and working on all of Star Trek know other science fiction. Sure. I think, I think there is a preference for people who know the genre. And Firefly, although it was only on for one season on Fox, uh, was was remarkable in several ways. And, you know, it would not at all surprise me if key people on the team, if not everybody, was, was familiar with it. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me either. Something I wanted to ask you about, Michael, I, yes. I, I was thinking about this and I just, I just don't know. When, when buffer time is eliminated, the Lower Decks crew had, they had basically become enslaved to their pads. They were running around with their pads, uh, looking at all their deadlines and trying to keep up. And then Freeman uh, eliminates that, that rule, her, her new uh, schedule, and says, tells them to break any rule, abandon any protocol, and cut any corner to defend the Cerritos. Then they start using their pads as weapons. Boimler grabbed a phaser, but the rest of them were just whacking 
these Galrakians over the heads with their pads. And I'm just wondering if that's symbolic. I mean, it, it seems to me some, you could make something of that, but I'm just not sure what to make of it. And I don't know if, if you have any ideas there, but it seems like it should be suggestive of something. I mean, I, I think, and maybe this is a good transition of topic. I mean, I think that, that if there is a message to this episode, it has to do with leadership and organizational culture and being a control freak and micromanaging or, or not, not micromanaging. And, you know, so, so part of the story being about our, our, our personal devices, whether we use them only for the job, whether we use them for other things, whether they chain us to work or whether we can use them for other things. Yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's part of the message. Oh, you know, yeah. You know what? I thought that just, I, that made me think of something. I mean, you know, you, your life, your life could be dominated by, by the devices. It depends on your approach. You get, your life could be dominated by them or you could use them in the way they're supposed to be used as tools yeah. and merely as tools, you know, not that you would necessarily attack people with them, but they, <laughs> they, they shouldn't, they shouldn't run your lives. Um, you know, you see the memes on the internet of, you know, we'll give you a fortune if you'll go live in this cabin in the woods with no internet for a year. Would you do it? <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, no. I, 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 I use internet and mobile devices and things a lot in my daily life, some for, for productivity things that I'm doing, some just for recreation and enjoyment. And there are people that can't keep that kind of thing in balance. But, you know, I, 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 think, I think it is a comment that is maybe part of, of the bigger judgment. And, and I think that, that the story is about, uh, it's about leadership. Uh, it's about being a good leader. It's about being a bad leader and about how a leader exercises judgment. And I think that there are some contrasts here that, uh, that we can talk about. Yeah, there's, there's I mean, I, I feel like the, the entire series so far, well, one of the main themes has been following protocol and breaking protocol. But I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think this is the first episode in which we get something like a full-throated defense of protocol uh, in the form of Ransom. Ransom tells Mariner that her disregard for protocol is going to get someone killed. And he's probably right about that, actually. Or at least I think that he is. And I, I feel like in this episode, Mariner gets taken down a notch. And maybe she should be. She's a bit of a jerk in this episode. I think she's going way too far. And we're also given a resolution to this conflict between that, that's, that we've seen all three episodes between following protocol and disregarding it. And I think this dovetails with, with what you're saying, but maybe in different words, we're, we're given two extremes here, right? Uh, represented by Captain Freeman and maybe Brad Boimler of a rigid, maybe unthinking regard for protocol and following it. On, that's on the one extreme. And then on the other extreme, we get Mariner's total disregard for it. Between the two, there should be a kind of Aristotelian golden mean. And that, I think, is maybe what they arrive at at the end of the episode. You know, you, you have to avoid these extremes. The virtue is, is in the golden mean somewhere, which is buffer time, I think. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the captain, when the captain starts micromanaging the crew, essentially they perform worse. Uh, she wants them to perform better, so they look good on the, 
on the efficiency reports and stuff, but they end up performing worse because it's more stressful and, and they don't have that downtime. So on Cerritos, when initiative is suppressed, productivity declines. And I think that that's a message that's relevant across a wide range of business and organizations today. Uh, again, how much micromanagement, how much discretion do we have? If you hire someone who supposedly has the skills and ability, but then don't let them fully use that, then maybe it's not surprising. But, but there, are, there are approaches to management where you don't give anybody any discretion. In management theory, it's called theory X. In, in, in theory X, you believe that the employees don't really want to work, and so you have to force them and intimidate them into it. And I kind of think that's what we saw from, uh, from Captain, Captain Freeman here. Now, down on the planet, and, and you mentioned that conversation between, between Ransom and Mariner. I think that's a key to this episode. There we find out that it's the right amount of initiative that succeeds, and enough but not too much. And that, that's the mean that you were, you were just talking about. So in the episode, we're seeing the contrast between, uh, on the one hand, micromanaging and being a control freak, but on the other hand, maybe not having any discipline at all, which is an awful lot of the time that that's, that's Mariner. And, you know, Boimler admits, you know, that not everyone is like him. And for the good of the ship, he admits, you know, we have to loosen up. And he himself equates flexibility with being a great crew. And then Captain says, you know, in her message to the crew, you are Starfleet, do what you have to do to take back this ship. That sounds an awful lot like some things Michael Burnham has said, we are Starfleet, this is how we do it. And if you look at the, the playoff of the characters, Mariner is kind of like Captain Freeman in this episode. Uh, Mariner wants to do it all. Captain Freeman is stuck doing it all. Mariner says protocols for people who need to be told what to do. I don't. But then she says, sometimes you have to do what's wrong to survive. And that's when Ransom stabs her in the foot to keep her from, from fighting. And she's, she's talking about surviving as, as the away team. But I wonder if, she, if the subtext to that is she's talking about her regular life, that to survive in her regular life. I mean, she grew up apparently estranged from her mom, at least, and maybe being the way she is, is part of how she just survives in her, in her regular life. Right. Yeah. Maybe she, she's fallen into this pattern of just making all the calls herself. And though she wants to be a part of Starfleet, we, we assume that's what she wants to do in Starfleet as well. Um, another thing you said earlier, you know, when you, you reminded me that Mariner tells Ransom that, you know, sometimes you have to do what's wrong to survive. And of course, that's what Ransom does. He did something that he that could get him court-martialed. Well, so did Burnham. And by the end of the first season of Discovery, she had learned that you, you can't, at least, I guess you can still violate protocol, but you can't violate the fundamental tenets of uh, Starfleet. But it's interesting how this, this episode may be a little bit at odds with Discovery in a way. I mean, the similarity between Mariner and uh, Burnham is, is interesting. I mean, she thought that they had to go against protocol in order to survive. Uh, I'm talking about um, Burnham now, and that if they didn't fire first against the Klingons, then uh, the consequences would be grave. And that's, of course, not what happened. 
So I don't know what you think about that. Well, that gets into discovery, and I have some, I have some disagreements with how Michael Burnham processed the recommendations that Sarek gave her in that oh. first episode. But, but it, you know, it, it it was part of the script, and they had needed to do that. But uh, so <laughs> discussion but, but, for another time. Yeah, maybe for another podcast episode if if we ever look at the first season of Discovery. So, uh, but, but again, the, the question, the question, our organizational culture is discretion, doing it by the book. Is the book always right? Is the book open to revision? How do you go about doing that? A lot of questions here and not big worldwide public policy questions, but I think these, these issues of, of you know, protocol being by the book, control freaks, Micromanaging, I think a lot of people have experienced that. So I think it, it is a, Absolutely. A, worthy, a worthy story here. I've got, I've got another slant on this. I think it might be related to what uh, we've been talking about so far. But I, I think maybe with this episode, we did finally get some commentary on a big social issue. Let me start by reminding us about this buffer time. When Freeman eliminates it, she tells them, all assignments must be completed and logged in exactly the time mandated by command. And she says that failure to meet quotas will not be tolerated. And when I heard that, I couldn't help but think of this 2003 movie, The Corporation, which is a documentary about capitalism and corporations in particular. And in that documentary, we meet this man named Charles Kernigan, who at the time was director of the National Labor Committee and he talks about how they had discovered some Nike documents in a garbage dump in the Dominican Republic, which showed timeframes assigned to every operation its sweatshop employees would perform. And the timeframes were broken down into 10 thousandths of a second. Employees, he says, were given 6.6141 minutes to perform the 22 operations necessary to make a particular shirt. And he characterized it as the science of exploitation. I think Freeman turned the Cerritos into a kind of a sweatshop. And you saw the disastrous results of that on the Lower Decks crew. And so I, I feel like this episode may have been about sweatshops and the sort of attitudes managers, employers, corporations take toward their labor, the workers. I mean, for years, management has been expecting more and more from its workers. Management, they want or seem to want oftentimes optimum performance from workers, but people are not machines. You know, they need downtime. They also need jobs in which they can contribute something like we were talking about earlier, and they're not merely mindlessly performing tasks. So it's, it's really best that employers accept not optimal performance from their employees, but satisfactory performance. So interesting, interesting. I, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, the quantifying um, increments of work uh, that, that does fit into this question of, of management philosophy and, and, and micromanaging and control freak and I think mm -hmm. on in in organizations that do assembly line work like that right you know, car manufacturers your job is to put this bolt this nut on that bolt and you have to have it done by the time the car has passed you on the assembly line and 
again, I think the key to, to the message of this episode and, and it spans these different things we've been talked about is, is that conversation between, between Ransom and Mariner. And I kind of alluded to this earlier. She thinks she'll be best at fighting. He has confidence in, in himself and he thinks it's his duty to not to, to do it himself and not allow his subordinates to take care of his subordinates and that. He said at one point, he said, I would rather die than let you fight Bender. Do you remember both that? Of them, yeah. Both of them are thinking in terms of duty and responsibility and how to succeed at, at the mission. But that contrasts with Captain Freeman, who is really only worried about how the Starfleet bureaucracy will perceive the efficiency reports and therefore what her assignments will be for either really big, important assignments or giving trinkets to second contact. Second contact. Unfortunately for her, I think the Admiral told her that maybe she would be invited to the next once-in-a-lifetime summit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not going to happen. I thought that was pretty funny. So we're at the point where it's time to kind of wrap up. I did want to revisit one thing from last week where in, in the opening, we, we saw the, the energy being and Mariner was going to put the energy being in a canister. And you said that you thought that was, was unethical. And I've been thinking about that this week. And I don't necessarily think they had a mes message for us in that incident. But to be honest, I was thinking in, in various states around the United States, we have something called stand your ground laws where... Um, where, where that kind of law isn't in effect. If you get into a conflict situation, the assumption of the law is that you will try to de-escalate. But the stand your ground laws say if you're in conflict, you can, you can return aggression with, with more aggression. And of course, that has been controversial in various cases and deaths and things like that. But, but that's kind of what Mariner was doing. You know, you had this energy being come up and all kinds of bluster and, and that, and she just, she just kind of fought back. Like I said, I don't think there's a message, but she apparently did think that it was okay to meet force with force. And like you said, I'm not really sure about the ethics of that. It was funny. It was really funny, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure if we're happy with that message in Star Trek. I don't think, yeah, that, would, that probably wouldn't sit well with Starfleet, at least uh, at the time that Lower Decks occurs. And... You know, given that this energy being was really no threat to them, no serious threat, I agree with you that the 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 wrong, you know, the fact that you can overpower <laughs> uh, a, a sentient being um, is not a good reason to to do that, even if they can squeeze a fancy tricorder with a purple stripe out stripe out themselves. <laughs> right. I you know, but I I'm thinking. This is another line that they're trying to uh, walk here. I mean, you, you, you want, it's supposed to be a comedy. They want to do humor. And I don't have a problem with that. And talking about this scene again, it is funny. But how far away can you stray from Star Trek until it's not Star Trek anymore? And I'm, I'm, I'm willing to tolerate it. I, you know, given that this is a comedy, but at some point, there's a line somewhere if they go over it, then we're not watching Star Trek anymore. Um, I don't think they've crossed that line yet, although I'm sure there are people out there who disagree. We're at three of ten episodes in this season of Lower Decks, so we'll see what they do with the next, the next two-thirds of, 
of the season. But now we're at the time for kind of final thoughts about temporal edict. Rodney, do you have a kind of your final assessment? I, I don't really have any final thoughts. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, same story as before. I, I had my doubts about the series before I started watching, but I'm looking forward to it every week. Um, I'm, I'm liking the characters. I, I'm liking what they're doing. And so I'm, I'm enjoying myself so far. How about you? I think this episode has an interesting message, again, about micromanagement and using initiative about organizational culture. The previous two episodes, I could imagine those stories working in not a comedy setting, so with the little bits of humor kind of pulled out, I could imagine them working. This one was fun, but it, it depends more on the comedic elements, like the opening scene in, in the bar. I can't imagine that happening on Jean-Luc Picard's uh, Enterprise, for example. I could see it happening uh, on the Orville. <laughs> That's a different series, but yeah, yeah maybe, yeah. maybe. But but still, it is an interesting message this week. I grant your your thought about assembly line work and sweatshop work, but uh, but on the other hand, you have to kind of look for the message. It's not an overt message this time, but it gives us things to think about our modern society. And and then as always, although it's animation, we have really nice visualizations of the interior and exterior of the ship where the shuttle was landing on the planet flying through clouds. I thought that was beautiful animation and it goes way beyond what the bare minimum needs would be for, for an animated episode. And I wanted to say, and I guess this doesn't need to be pointed out, but I, I was thinking this last time, this show looks great. I mean, it's very colorful. The animation is beautiful. So if, if nothing else, it's very pleasant to look at. Well, I guess that's about it for this week. Thank you for joining us. The Star Trek Academy podcast responds to every new Star Trek episode of every series, including Lower Decks Now and the third season of Discovery later this fall. You can find new episodes at the Star Trek Academy.blogspot.com. That site also has links for your pod catching software. So join us again next week for the Star Trek Academy podcast. See you then.